This business news podcast is supported by Hopgood Gannam Lawyers. Our knowledge and expertise has been delivering exceptional outcomes for nearly 50 years. All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At close of business, news briefing. Good afternoon, it's Jacinta Burton with your Wednesday afternoon headlines. West Farmers CEO Rob Scott and FMG founder Andrew Forrest are likely to be the only Perth-based business representatives at next week's Jobs and Skills Summit in Canberra. Woodside Energy Chief Meg O'Neill is a conspicuous absentee from the event, which will be attended by some 100 people from business, unions and community groups. Premier Mark McGowan will also attend, alongside with his counterparts from other states and territories. The Jobs and Skills Summit will be hosted by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Treasurer Jim Chalmers and is designed to help frame policy formation. The federal government has not yet released a list of attendees, but details on the business representatives, numbering 30 in total, have slowly emerged. Business News has confirmed that Mr Scott and Mr Forrest have been invited and will attend. Mining giants BHP and Rio Tinto, which are two of the largest employers in WA, will be represented by Melbourne-based executives, Chief Executive Mike Henry and Chief Executive of Australia Kelly Parker, respectively. And in other news, operations on Shell's Prelude FLNG facility are expected to resume after five weeks of industrial action, with the energy giant caving to union demands for pay rises and better job security. Shell and the Offshore Alliance, which represents about 85% of the facility's workforce, have been locked in a bitter battle for the last 18 months. The union has been lobbying for better pay, a clear classification structure and assurances workers won't be replaced by cheaper contractors. In the absence of a deal, the AWU members enforced working bans that prevented Shell from unloading its LNG storage tanks, prompting a halt to production in mid-July. Today, the Offshore Alliance revealed it had breached an in-principle enterprise agreement with Shell Prelude's management, securing improvements to pay, rostering job security and career progression provisions. Under the agreement, Shell has vowed not to reduce the number of employees covered by the deal if it ups its use of contractor or labour hire workers. And Perth Investment Bank and stockbroker Argonaut has disclosed a big lift in annual profit to $16.7 million following its merger with advisory firm PCF Capital Group. The net profit after tax for the year to June 2022 was up from $10.3 million in the prior financial year. The unlisted company shareholders led by Chairman Eddie Rigg were well rewarded with a near doubling in the annual dividend to $9.1 million. The higher profit was on the back of a 52% lift in annual revenue to $50.1 million, with the company saying it had strong contributions across equity capital markets, brokerage, mergers and acquisitions, merchant banking and principal investment activities. Argonaut advised on 10 announced M&A deals collectively worth more than $700 million over the past year. Ranked by number of deals, this made it one of the busiest advisory firms in WA. Argonaut said it had entered the new financial year with net tangible assets of more than $28 million and a strong business pipeline. And coming up next, journalist Madeline Stevens unpacks her arts and culture feature, discussing how leadership changes, new productions and Aboriginal arts centres have defined the sector over the past year. Hopgood Gannam Lawyers is one of Australia's leading independent legal advisory firms. For nearly 50 years, our knowledge and expertise has delivered exceptional outcomes for our clients. 
giving them the most accurate, appropriate, and usable guidance. We invest time and expertise to build trusted alliances with our clients and to understand their commercial drivers, which enables us to deliver over and above what a traditional legal firm offers. To find out what we can do for you, visit hopgoodganum.com.au. Hopgood Ganim Lawyers. Exceptional outcomes. Welcome back to At Close Business. I'm Jordan Murray and today I'm joined by Madeline Stevens. Maddie, how are you this afternoon? Good, thanks, Jordan. How are you going? Good, thank you. Maddie, the arts and culture sector has been in the headlines for the past two years as one of the industries most affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. In our latest issue, you checked in with the sector to see how it was faring. Can you tell me what you found? Sure. Uh, So one of the standout things that I've noticed over the past couple of years and also while I was compiling this feature uh, was the amount of movement among senior leaders in the sector. So I looked at Business News' uh, list of the biggest arts and culture companies on data and insights and found at least 10 of the 20 organisations listed had reported new leadership over the past two years. So three of the four major arts companies have new bosses, uh, with West Australian Opera's Caroline Chard, uh, the only executive director to have led her organisation for the duration of the pandemic. Uh, Paul Shannon um, stepped up in May 2020 to lead uh, Wazo on an interim basis uh, before taking on the role full-time in July 2021. Uh, at Black Swan, uh, Rick Heath, uh, was he was appointed in early 2020 and then he departed in May 2022. Uh, Mr Heath and the organisation's artistic director, Claire Watson, uh, were both replaced uh, in April and May of this year um, by Ian Booth and Kate Champion, respectively. And at West Australian Ballet, um, Olivia David moved to WA from Melbourne to take the executive director role at the company um, last year and uh, and then he resigned uh, this year, so he was in the role for about a year. Um, some of the medium-sized art companies, Barking Gecko Theatre Company, Form, Building a State of Creativity and Perth Symphony Orchestra have all recruited new leaders in this time. In March of this year, uh, the Chief Executive and Chief Librarian of the State Library of Western Australia, Margaret Allen, she announced her retirement. She had been in the role a long time. She'd been there 17 years. Uh, And then uh, more recently, just a few weeks ago, uh, Pilar Cassett was appointed Chief Executive of Regional Arts WA, replacing Phil McPhail. So as you can see, uh, yeah, there's been a ton of change. And that loss of talent, where does that leave the sector as a whole? Yeah, sure. So obviously, yeah, losing all that experienced leadership uh, could cause issues down the line. The Chamber of Arts and Culture, WA's COVID Financial and Wellbeing Impact Survey, uh, they surveyed um, artists and arts workers in March 2020. Uh, They found increased staff burnout and the resulting loss of skilled staff and artists would have a lasting impact on the sector. It said organisations were worried about how they would attract volunteers and paid staff back to the sector uh, because once people have left the arts, a lot of people that I interviewed told me it was difficult to get those workers back. Uh, Chamber of Arts and Culture WA Executive Director Kim Jamison said attracting staff back into the arts required the sector to be taken seriously as part of the state's workforce. 
She said that if we don't invest in the sector, people are going to leave the state um, to pursue opportunities over east or overseas or just change um, into a more stable industry. So apart from that leadership movement, what else is happening in the arts here in Western Australia? Sure. So there is still quite a lot of uncertainty. Uh, The sector is awaiting the details of the latest multi-year funding round, the Arts Organisation Investment Program funding, uh, which will secure the finances of um, some of those small to medium companies for the next three years. The round opens for submissions next month, um, but when I was speaking to people, uh, they were still um, a bit unclear about how the funding would be structured this year and how much money would be up for grabs. So a lot of people were saying that it was difficult to plan ahead. Um, And this uncertainty comes as organisations are also battling with the increasing costs of performing uh, amid rising inflation. So inflation is is affecting you and me, um, but of course that is also impacting uh, everyone. Uh, Large organisations that receive multi-year funding from the Australia Council of the Arts, uh, which was last awarded in 2021, um, they're also uh, feeling this squeeze. Uh, Ian Booth from Black Swan said his team had found the cost of performing in 2022 was 50% more expensive than in 2019. He said more understudies were needed for performances given the spread of COVID throughout the community uh, and its effects on artists. He said uh, that this had the potential to affect what shows the company chose to perform uh, with a preference towards those requiring fewer artists. So he said um, they performed once earlier this year that had 13 artists and although they were able to perform every show, it caused a lot of stress. So he said they weren't sure if they were going to commit to such a large production again anytime soon. The pandemic has also changed consumer behaviour. This was a really uh, common thing that people told me. A lot of people said that previously audiences would purchase tickets to shows uh, when they came on sale, when they heard about the show, uh, but they were now waiting a lot closer to the performance date, which was making it a lot harder for companies to plan ahead. And it's not just negative stories in the arts. There's actually some success stories that you had a look at as well. Yeah, um, while conducting interviews and talking to people, uh, the resilience of the sector became really clear. So despite the difficulties of operating and the uncertainty over the past few years, uh, quite a few organisations have expanded. So at Perth Festival, they are looking at expanding the festival's remit to operate year-round. Uh, They have a new special projects division, which is going to use the experience of people employed at the festival to offer consulting services to other large organisations and events that are happening throughout the year. Uh, There's also Theatre 180, uh, previously known as AgeLink Theatre. It has emerged from the pandemic as um, as a strong player in the small to medium theatre sector. In 2019, only a few months before COVID hit, the company transitioned from performing oral histories and shows for seniors to broadening their remit into other forms of theatre, which is where that name change came from. 
The company's first show under its new name was a rendition of A.B. Facey's A Fortunate Life, uh, which was actually performed in theatres. So they used the um, the big screen in the theatre as a backdrop uh, for the play that they were performing in front of it. And Theatre 180 director Rebecca Davis uh, said that this really put the company on the map. It was developed in partnership with Arana Cinemas and Albany-based Green Man Media Productions. Uh, and that theatre format, uh, really helped movie theatres during the pandemic uh, because uh, they weren't getting those Hollywood blockbusters, so less people were going to the movies, uh, and that's when they were actually open and people could attend. Um, yeah, so this collaboration really raised their visitation uh, throughout that time. It also helped out Theatre 180 as well uh, because the fact it can be transported to any cinema or performed in front of Theatre 180's transportable screen and only requires three actors means the show was able to travel regionally. Uh, it also had a lot of longevity. So while most theatre shows only run for two or three weeks, uh, A Fortunate Life has clocked up more than 100 shows um, because they can just keep pulling it out um, when the demand is there. The th work of the theatre has been recognised by Sam and Leanne Walsh, um, who have become patrons of the organisation. Down south, uh, Bustleton-based film festival Cinefest Oz is due to take place this week. Uh, according to the organisation's chair, Melinda Nixon, the festival is expecting a lot of visitors from the East Coast, which is something different to the previous few years, uh, with the new Melbourne to Bustleton flight route sold out. Um, the festival has also expanded uh, in the past few years. Uh, it established an Albany iteration of the festival in 2021 and has plans for a Broome Festival in November. Uh, the Broom Festival is being organised in, in partnership with Gulari Media uh, with the support of the very first $100,000 Arts Impact WA grant. So that is exciting. Some other organisations have actually started new festivals over the past two years as well. So the Perth International Cabaret Festival festival was launched in 2021 and celebrated its second year in June of this year. Uh, there's also a group in Scarborough that established a new jazz festival last year and are about to launch a second iteration of the event this weekend. Uh, several beachside venues and the Scarborough Beach Association recruited jazz singer and event promoter Catherine Summers to organise Jazz by the Beach to activate the area. Uh, last year and then following the success of this festival uh, the event has attracted more sponsorship and recruited about 80 mus musicians to take part in a second festival which will run over this weekend. That was your lead story. Your second story covered the rise of Aboriginal art centres. Can you tell me a bit about art centres and maybe how they've grown? Sure, yeah. So um, art centres, there's about 120 uh, around Australia and um, they provide a space for Aboriginal artists to work. They provide the materials and they also work as their agents. So many art centres are members of the Indigenous Art Code, which provides a set of rules and guidelines for dealers to ensure ethical practices and fair treatment of artists. Um, so this is uh, designed to curb the selling of fake Indigenous art, which a recent report found was quite prevalent. So the code signals to consumers that the art they are buying offers artists a fair deal and is authentic. Art centres then, um, they take a cut of the sales of the art painted by the artists in their centres uh, to pay uh, staff and facilities as well 
as uh, the paints, canvases and other equipment um, and also provides transport for artists um, and sometimes lunches as well. A lot of the art centre managers I spoke to stressed the importance of art centres to the community and how they provide a lot more uh, than just art. At Martimili Artists in Newman, art centre manager Amy Mukherjee said while the art centre was technically a commercial agent, it, yeah, it did offer a lot more than that, creating a cultural and familial space for communities. Uh, another um, or art centre manager, um, Lorraine Coppin, um, she's the chief executive of Juluwalu Art Group and she doesn't want her group to be seen as an art centre but instead a cultural interpretive hub built on a model of creating enterprises to keep family together. She said some artists uh, will be painting and then other times they'll be working with anthropologists or linguists or teaching the younger generations. So they have um, a really great archive of Yinjibandi history um, at their art centre up there or at their interpretive hub. And yeah, my story um, did really focus on the growth of these Aboriginal art centres over the past decade or so. The Productivity Commission recently released its draft report into the nature and structure of markets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander arts. Um, so there's lots of fresh statistics on the sector. Uh, according to the report, national sales of Aboriginal art doubled in value to 30 million between 2012 and 2020. Overseas sales doubled from a small base to almost 1.4 million in 2021. And the amount Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists received from licensing agreements increased by more than 50% between 2019 and 2021. Um, a very public display of one of these licensing agreements was on show earlier this year at Sydney's Vivid Light Festival with the work uh, of artists from Martu Millie projected onto the sails of the Sydney Opera House, um, which was yeah looked very cool from the photos. Um, some of the art centres managers that I spoke to said they thought that this shift was down to a few factors. Miss Mukherjee from Martimili Artists said she believed the increase in activity was tied to growing cultural awareness, especially in the wake of the global Black Lives Matter movement. She said the pandemic had also played a role in the growing profile of art centres, uh, with WA's closed borders, a lot um, more local tourists visited the state's north, uh, with an increase in traffic driving past Martumili on the way uh, to Karajini um, because they're not far from the tourist destination. The pandemic also gave Martumili time to put all of their work online. So now um, people can buy their art um, from all over Australia and overseas without having to visit the Newman site. A characteristically thorough review of the sector and everything that's happened over the past 12 months. Maddie, we appreciate your time. To read more, head online to businessnews.com.au, scroll down to the special reports tab, or pick up the latest edition of Business News and flick to our features section. Maddie, thank you so much. Thanks, Jordan. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au. This business news podcast is supported by Hopgood Gannon Lawyers. Our knowledge and expertise has been delivering exceptional outcomes for nearly 50 years.